Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the president makes his closing argument ahead of the midterms. A vote is not a partisan tool to be counted when it helps your candidates and tossed aside when it doesn't. A conservative Supreme Court appears ready to upend another decades-old precedent. Clear signs that the long era of affirmative action in higher education in America could be coming to an end. Plus, the high court grants a reprieve to former President Trump and a race for state legislature has pitted father against son, and it's splitting the family apart. All of that coming up this hour, but first, Spliff, Doobie, Mary Jane, and really the lyrics to any Tom Petty song. All things I had to learn in the last decade since recreational marijuana was first legalized here in Washington State. Now, a lot has changed since then, but at the same time, other things really haven't. Joining us now is Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, who's been covering this for us. And let's start by going back to 2012. Initiative 502 was the ballot measure that legalized recreational marijuana, and it passed in something of a landslide here in Washington State, 56 to 44. Indeed it did. But first, Jeff, I want to take you back to your music lessons, because in no way did I-502 require you uh, to learn the lyrics of Snoop Dogg or 311 either. So uh, you're, you're safe there. That's all learning that you did on your own. But to look at the history of I-502, you have to go back to what was happening just before I-502 became a thing. And for me, my coverage of legalizing marijuana even goes back to when I was working down in Riverside County, California in like 2005, 2006. That county was the test market for California's medical marijuana ID card. So it was sort of this balance of we want to protect patient privacy, but in order to use medical marijuana, you have to register with the state and then you can carry this card. And if you get pulled over by a police officer or a deputy, you can show them this and that's supposed to get you off the hook. At the same time, California law enforcement officers were essentially instructed, don't enforce these laws, don't go after these people who are operating dispensaries, that sort of thing. Yet they would join up with federal task forces that would raid dispensaries because that federal prohibition, even still exists to this day. So then you come to Washington State, where the medical marijuana law had been passed, and that allows uh, people to possess a certain amount. It still exists. And in fact, the possession amounts are much higher than those for adult recreational use. No tax breaks on it. So you still would have to pay taxes, but medical marijuana folks can, can grow themselves. And right before 2012, when I-502 came around, the feds were sort of saying, well, we're not going to go after these people who are trying to, you know, help people who are medical marijuana patients. And that sort of opened the door for these medical marijuana dispensaries that we started to see pop up. But it wasn't really a regulated market. So now we come into this place where they wanted to regulate the medical marijuana market. 2011, a bill passes. Then Governor Christine Gregoire vetoes that part of it, does a line item veto on it because she was still concerned that the feds would crack down. And keep in mind, you know, when states do things that the federal government doesn't like, it's usually, well, we'll withhold your highway funds. And that puts states, you know, in a panic, like when they wanted to raise the speed limit from 55 to 60. And it was always that threat. If you do that, we'll withhold your federal highway funds. Well, that doesn't really come to fruition. So then you enter Allison Holcomb with the ACLU, who started to create Initiative 502. Now, 
what's interesting here is she wasn't looking to create this regulated adult recreational market. She just wanted to decriminalize marijuana possession and even some distribution because it those laws were, as she put it, you know, were sort of being abused by some law enforcement agencies and quite frequently targeted communities of color. And so there was a disproportionate number of uh, people of color that were locked up because of simple marijuana possession, a small baggie in their pocket could land them in jail for six months or a year or whatever the penalties were. And so that was where she was aiming. But as she was creating this, there were also questions about public health, public safety. You know, these products are being created and nobody's regulating, you know, how much pesticides are used in them and that sort of thing. And so it evolved into a situation where I believe she almost felt like it couldn't be done without also establishing this regulated market. That became I-502. And on that election day in 2012, uh, it was passed, as you said, by an overwhelming margin. And I can remember the folks right outside of our office, right across the street of the Space Needle, gathering and sparking up to celebrate. <laughs> well, and the Seattle police, even uh, they were handing out bags of Doritos at the time, as I recall. But uh, 10 years in, what has the state learned from Initiative 502 and the legalization of marijuana? How have things changed? Because there's, there's still some significant challenges. Indeed. Uh, one of the things that they have learned is that federal prohibition is still a problem. And really the main area where it remains a problem is when it comes to banking, because these businesses now are all cash businesses. They basically either have to take the cash home with them at night or store it on site in safes or however they manage it. No way to take, uh, you know, plastic, debit cards, credit cards, none of it, because banks are federally regulated. And the banks don't want to get involved because they'll, they're will they worried that they'll be charged with racketeering and their federal licenses taken away. So it, it forces these businesses to be all cash. And, of course, that becomes a magnet for crime. So there are, there are the banking issues. There are some security issues. But this is a situation that is still evolving and the rules are still being worked out. There has been long since a push to at least change the, the federal banking regulations. There was hope that with Joe Biden in the White House and Democrats in the majority in Congress, albeit slim, that maybe that if marijuana would be removed from the uh, federal schedule one list of narcotics and that prohibition lifted. None of it has happened yet. And with the chance that, uh, you know, the Republicans could take back Congress, odds are pretty slim that that would probably happen in the next couple of years. Yeah, you mentioned it's still a Schedule One narcotic, which means the federal government considers it to be in, in the same vein as, say, heroin or any of the opioid drugs that are out there that have caused the opioid crisis, when I think a lot of the evidence is that it's not nearly as harmful. The other thing, too, is that we've seen a bit more research conducted, particularly here in Washington state since it's been legalized, because so many institutions, federal or otherwise, have been afraid to study medical marijuana or recreational marijuana because of that federal prohibition. Absolutely. And we are seeing more and more research. But I'll tell you the thing that still stands out to me after all these years, and again, it goes back more than 15 years to when I was down working in Riverside County, and that's that a medical marijuana patient told me, look, it's not about getting high or the weed relieving your pain itself, 
for those cases, people who use medical marijuana because they deal with chronic pain, it's about enhancing the effectiveness of the prescription medication that you're using. And it, at times, it can be as much as eight or 900% that effectiveness enhanced. Now, if you're talking about that means taking less hydrocodone or other opioid drugs, well, then that, you know, sounds to me on the surface like it would be a real benefit. There is still more research being done. There's also question now, too, of as we, you know, continue to evolve the products, that they are becoming higher and higher potency. Uh, you have uh, now what is known as, uh, you know, wax or dabs, which is really highly concentrated THC products and kind of a gooey little thing and you have to have special equipment to use it and we're talking like uh, you know where uh, even a, a high potency joint maybe has 30 percent thc this these dabs this wax stuff is like 80 and 90 percent thc so the potency is off the scale so i suspect at some point we might also see some regulations that dial that back a little bit you mentioned potency for some of these uh, edibles or smokables or i don't even know what the terminology necessarily would be uh, and that's also a concern because if you recall the state patrol had that drive high get a dui effort as well but it's a lot harder to judge how much THC is in a bo in the body and how that affects one's responses. It's not as clear-cut as alcohol. No, not at all. I mean, you talk about essentially with alcohol, for every drink you have, it takes an hour for that drink to work its way through your system. I'm overgeneralizing here. When it comes to cannabis, that THC remains in your system for a long time. And I, I want to say, and you'll forgive me for not actually looking it up, but I want to say that it was something like 10 nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood or something along those lines to be considered a cannabis DUI. While a cannabis user might be able to smoke a little bit and be high for a while, and then in a couple of hours they come down, that blood level could very easily remain in that DUI range. So it is, again, as you said, sort of a, a, a subjective situation where then, you know, like the state patrol would have to bring in what they call a drug recognition expert who can, you know, look at your eyes and see if you're, if you're baked out of your mind while you're behind the wheel or whatever the case may be. So what's next for the legal marijuana industry here in Washington state? Well, uh, in this discussion that uh, Allison Holcomb was having with the Liquor and Cannabis Board, this look back after 10 years, she was talking about the idea of craft cannabis shops. So like we have craft distilleries or craft breweries. That wasn't always the case. Uh, back in the day, alcohol had to be produced by a producer, distributed by a distributor, and sold by a retailer, and there was no what they call vertical integration. Then, a few decades back, they opened that up to allow for these small-scale producers to make their own product and sell their own product in their own shops. We see these craft distilleries and small wineries and things like that all over the place here in Washington State. And that was what Allison was talking about in terms of the cannabis industry, because number one, you've got limited markets. 
the the pot that is grown here has to be sold here in Washington State because of the feds. We can't be moving it across uh, state lines. Uh, and you've got large money investors and sometimes corporate investors that are coming in and and doing this this growing and this distributing. And there's not a lot of economic equity in the market there. So they kind of are looking at that as a possibility to open that up a little more to give more people options because those those growers and those distributors then, you know, have control over the price because there's only a few of them. There's only so many that are licensed and there are only so many retailers that are licensed. And that number has a hard limit in both cases. And so, you know, that that it's like, a you know, a closed gas market like California is because of its regulations that affects the prices of things. And by opening that up, they think it not only could open up more opportunities for racial and economic equity in the cannabis industry, but also the opportunity you know, for some discounts, for it to be a little bit cheaper for some of the users and to have a situation where you build, you know, brand and customer loyalty among customers and these these craft producers. All right, Ryan Harris with Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Hey, no problem. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, the president's closing argument for next week's elections and the Republican response when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This past week, President Biden addressed the nation, talking about what he sees are threats to democracy. Extreme MAGA Republicans aim to question not only the legitimacy of past elections, but elections being held now and into the future. The extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, but is this driving force, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020. Joining me now is Kirby Wilbur. He is the former Washington State Republican Party chairman and former KVI talk show host who has since retired to Texas. And thank you so much for taking out your time out of your retirement to uh, chat with us tonight. I guess the first question I would have is, uh, what did you think of the president's speech? Well, first, thanks, Jeff, for asking me. I'd really appreciate it. I still have a lot of ties and connections Northwest. And, and uh, I just appreciate being asked. I got to tell you, I, I watched the president's speech and... I have conflicting emotions. Uh, first, let me say, without doubt, Joe Biden was legitimately elected president of the United States, and he won the election. And there might have been some fraud, as there probably in every election, but there was not enough fraud to affect the balance of the election. I mean, I'm sure we found people in places that shouldn't have been voting, but he's legitimately the president of the United States. Let me get that out of the way first. But this pitch on election denial seems to suggests to me that they don't really have anything else to be talking about in this campaign, number one. Uh, the economy's not doing well. Gas prices is high. The president, the last week of the campaign, should be talking about everything that they've accomplished and why they need to be continued in office. He should be out there with Democrat candidates for Congress and saying, look, we've done this and we've achieved this and we need to continue. Um, it should be a more positive message. Now, we're talking about danger to democracy. There are some people out there who are election deniers, like Stacey Abrams, candidate for Senate in Georgia. There have always been election deniers on both sides, um, in both parties, all parties, for probably most elections. 
this, we had a radical group within the Republican Party trying to storm the Capitol, and it was wrong, and a lot of them are now spending time in jail. But I don't think it reflects a large threat to democracy. The president mentioned election deniers running for office. Yeah, they're running for office. They're going to be elected or not elected. That's going to be the voice of the people. And if they do get elected, they're going to have a tough time justifying their belief in election denialism if somehow the odds were stacked against Donald Trump but not against them. So I think democracy is always under threat, but I don't think it's under serious threat at stake in this election. Uh, but it's an issue they're grabbing onto because they have nothing else to talk about. Certainly over the last several decades, we we have this trend of the midterm elections, uh, first-term president, they tend to lose a lot of seats. At least to me, in the years that I've been covering politics, this one seems to be a, a bit more pronounced. You have Obviously, the economy, we're just coming out of COVID. You have uh, inflation, which is the result of any number of things. And the blame tends to go to the guys in power. As credit tends to go when things go well, whether it's deserved or not. But I think the average American out there, Democrat, Republican, Independent, is looking at the numbers. And those numbers, I think they're looking at the high price of gas, which most people pay every day, every week. High price of groceries, which most people pay every week. They're looking at their shrinking 401ks and IRAs. I don't know about yours, but mine's a lot smaller than it was. They look at the stock market dropping significantly. They look at crime going up. And those are the things that affect people's everyday life. Uh, the president can talk about election deniers and things happening two years ago, January 6th, but that's faded from memory. And people don't see that as immediate threat. And yes, there are some people that denied uh, Biden being elected running for office, they may get elected, but it's not a threat to the system any more than Stacey Abrams denying the election in Georgia uh, is a threat any more than the congressman in 2004 that voted against the electoral college vote. You know, those things, that's not the threat that people see every day when they look at the numbers, what I will call the numbers game. And so I think it's going to be severe. And the president could have spent some time talking about the achievements of the Biden administration, why it's important to have Democrats in, in power, why they have to reelect a Democrat House, Democrat Senate, instead of tying an illegal immigrant who believes in theories who attacked the husband of the Speaker of the House, trying to tie him into the Republican Party. The guy's a lunatic. Uh, he's crazy, and he should be locked up, and what he did was wrong. And I just think the president or the Democrats are desperate not to talk about the real numbers that affect every day, everybody's life in this country. Working on the presumption that Republicans are going to take control of at least the U.S. House of Representatives, how mm -hmm. difficult will it be for, one, Kevin McCarthy to get the speakership he so clearly desires, and two, if he does, able to control this sort of Trump wing of the Republican Party, because this seems a lot like 2010 with the Tea Partiers and, and, and the conservative wing of the Republican Party causing a lot of headaches for the leadership. It's going to be very difficult because you have uh, probably four different factions in the Republican Party. You have the, uh, the Trump Republicans who are loyal to Donald Trump and go along with the MAGA philosophy. Uh, you have a lot of moderate Republicans out there from purple states to bluer states um, who get elected and may not be totally on board with the Republican philosophy. You have the old line conservatives, the Goldwater, Reagan, Buckley types, who are fading in number and in age. And then you've got other Republicans who are elected because they come from Republican areas who may not necessarily even be philosophically 
Republican, but they come from Republican districts. And so Kevin McCarthy is going to have a challenge in trying to tie the those factions together for some type of consensus. It's going to be very difficult. And I am very disappointed as a Republican. I'm very disappointed in the failure of the leadership of the Republican Party this year to come up with any type of campaign promise or platform. Uh, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich had his, uh, we're going to do these 10 things. They actually did seven of those 10 things, but it, it's almost totally a reaction to the numbers and the problems in the Democratic Party and their policies. I wish we'd been a bit more positive, and it's going to be a big challenge, very big challenge for January, because I think the Republicans take the House, and they're going to take the Senate, and it's going to be a problem. Politics, at least to me, it seems like over the last several cycles has become very reactionary. You had President Obama, which tended to be kind of a reaction to a very unpopular President George W. Bush. You had Trump, which was sort of a reaction to Obama. Now you have Biden, who is a reaction to Trump. Uh, how mm-hmm. Do you agree with that assessment? Is policy and yeah. politics now much more reactionary than forward thinking? Yeah, I think there's much more negativity in politics. You vote more against something than for something. I think that it has to do with the quality of the candidates on both sides. I mean, when you look at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016, who are the two most unpopular political figures in America? Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Just Hillary Clinton was more unpopular than Donald Trump. She had the people that voted for Hillary because they believed in her and the people that voted for Donald Trump because they believed in him. But you had the middle, people who voted for Trump because they didn't like Hillary more. And then you had the people who voted for Hillary because they didn't like Trump. And so you have this negative faction. And to be honest, when I look back um, in the last 40 years of politics, Ronald Reagan was a very positive, happy warrior, had an agenda. People didn't like him, but he was liked by people and he had a positive agenda. Um, George Bush kind of muddled his. Bill Clinton came across having his more positive figure. And when the Republican Party won Congress in 1994, Clinton worked with the Republicans, and we had a fairly good balanced budget, fairly good economy, but it started going downhill uh, in 2000, 2004, 2008, and I agree with your negative assessment. It's more I'm against that person, I'm for that person, and the Democrat or Republican who can come up with a a forward-looking positive agenda, I think is going to do quite well in the next 20 years. I just don't know if we have those yet. Well, that was going to kind of lead me to my next question. How do you solve this problem? Because this seems like a a, a very almost metastasized cancer on American politics, the way people are voting and and polarizing themselves. You're going to have to have candidates develop a positive agenda. I'm going to do this for America. Uh, Joe Biden, who tonight would have come up and said, I've achieved this. I'm going to achieve this if you give me my party, if you give us control of Congress and the Senate. I, but I need those votes to do this. You're going to come up with a Republican leader who says, we're different than the Democrats on these four issues, and this is why America will be better with us, not just, you know, they're corrupt and we don't like them and they spend too much money, but a positive agenda. And I think um, it's going to be very difficult in the age of social media uh, and the way politics is, is developing to do that. But that, in my mind, that's threat to democracy, not that Republicans will win and not that election deniers will hold office. The atmosphere that promotes negativity is more of a threat to our democratic process than electing Joe Kent or electing a Republican election denier or Secretary of State. Now, the threat comes from this negativity 
that we have to find a way to overcome. All right, Kirby Wilbur, former Washington State Republican Party chair and former KVI talk show host. Thank you so much for coming out of retirement and chatting with us. You bet, Jeff. Anytime. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We have to take another quick break, but later on, is affirmative action dead? We'll take a look at this week's arguments in front of the Supreme Court when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, the wait is on. The U.S. Supreme Court has heard two cases this past week that could determine what role affirmative action might play in higher education. Alex Perche is covering it for ABC News and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. Alex, there's about four decades of legal precedent to support the consideration of race in college admissions. What were the justices hearing today? Well, so we're looking at two challenges uh, that, that, that are going forward, one dealing with Harvard University and another uh, with the University of North Carolina. But uh, essentially, I mean, this is something that, uh, while a lot of academics and certainly a lot of uh, liberals felt was settled law, um, there there's a challenge from a conservative group of, of students and parents uh, basically saying that they believe that affirmative action violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and also Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, basically saying that you know any institution that receives federal funding uh, shouldn't have uh, race-based uh, preferences. What are we hearing from the schools today? I'm imagining they're defending those practices. Well, so the schools are defending them, saying... Essentially, I mean, this this is something that's been in place, uh, as you mentioned, now for four decades, um, but also that it's been beneficial to helping them diversify their student bases. Um, but we've seen a, a, a back and forth from, uh, from 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 some of the justices. I mean, obviously, the, the, the court is as diverse as it's ever been right now. So you can imagine the range of thought on, on, on this. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have you have some justices like Justice Roberts, who has been a, a, a staunch critic of, of race based um, programs uh, like affirmative action in the past, uh, has challenged that, look, I mean, this while Yes, you know we've 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 had this in place this current time. You know there isn't any sort of sunset to this uh, to to form affirmative action, uh, and we're not in the same place as we were, you know, 30 years ago. Meanwhile, you have uh, Justice Elena Kagan, uh, who was kind of questioning. Well, look, I mean, like the culture kind of comes along with the race, and so I mean it's 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 really kind of hard to to to, to think that I mean you could have someone who you know, just writes about their culture in, a, in, a, in an essay, and that, in that, in that suffice. I mean, it, it, it makes sense um, that uh, that that you know it, it would co- it would come up in other areas as well. Has there been any kind of measurement of what changes might mean if changes are made here? If changes are made, they will be sweeping, right? Because I mean, you're you're talking about uh, not just Harvard and and the University of North Carolina. I mean, there would be sweeping changes across the country, uh, essentially to any university that takes federal funding, which you have to imagine must be, uh, if not all, at least the vast majority of schools. But, but there also there are also some concerns that look the ramifications of this could 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 really impact what college campuses look like. In fact, and there was a study done in in, in 2014 that said um, they expected that students of color would experience an estimated 23 percent decline in the likelihood of admission to highly selective public universities uh, if affirmative action were, were to go away. But then 
you know, folks that are, are detracting from that would say that, you know, they believe that, that that's just uh, that that's just an exaggeration. And of course, to the inner workings of the court, we're probably several months away from hearing a final word on this, right? Yeah. So arguments kicked off today, oral arguments kicked off today. But I mean, this is something that's going to take months, months to decide. We're, we're expecting maybe something in the spring. ABC's Alex Brochet with us on the Northwest News Line. That's Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. Now we have to take another quick break. But when we come back, the justices give some relief to former President Trump. We'll have that when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Taylor Van Syce. Former President Trump, both on the campaign trail and in office, claimed that he had no problem releasing his tax records. This is what he said on Good Morning America in May of 2016. When the audit ends, I'm going to present them. That should be before the election. I hope it's before the election. He never followed through on that. A congressional committee hoped to get those tax records as soon as this week. But as Robert Barnes reports in the Washington Post, the Supreme Court's Chief Justice, John Roberts, halted the release. And Robert joins us on Northwest News Radio. First, remind us of what the House Ways and Means Committee is investigating. Why do they say they need the former president's tax records? Well, they say that they need the records because they are looking into laws that govern and audit uh, presidential tax records, uh, and that this is an investigative uh, function of Congress, and it needs to decide whether or not these laws need to be updated or not. Uh, Ex-President Trump's lawyers say that it's a fishing expedition that Democratic lawmakers have for years tried to expose the uh, uh, Trump's financial records, and that they say that that's just a pretext for trying to get these records. Up to this point, lower courts found that these lawmakers are indeed entitled to the documents. Why did the Chief Justice halt the release today? Well, I think mainly uh, the thing to remember is this is a temporary halt to it. Um, This uh, came to the court very quickly. An appeals court last week said that it would not stop the release, and the release was scheduled for uh, this coming Thursday. And so Trump's uh, lawyer said uh, to at least temporarily put a hold on this so that the court can consider their arguments. And so the uh, chief justice did put a temporary hold. The records will not be released on Thursday. And by next Thursday, the House Ways and Means Committee is supposed to respond and tell uh, the Supreme Court its side of this dispute. The former president, we know he appointed three justices to the high court, but it's not as though they've been giving him sweetheart deals all the time, right? He's, he's still been subjected to investigations in and out of office. That's right. Uh, the former president and conservatives in general will be happy with the way those justices have uh, voted on important issues, uh, but not uh, very happy with the way they have uh, voted on his request. Uh, they didn't take up any of the election challenges that he had hoped for. And uh, so far in these kind of disputes over the release of records, uh, he has not gotten the support of the Supreme Court, including those justices that he nominated. There's a lot more to this that you can read online at WashingtonPost.com from Robert Barnes, who covers the Supreme Court for the Washington Post. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, the latest on the Oath Keepers and their role in the January 6th insurrection and how a local family is being torn apart by politics when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Kim Shepard. Prosecutors in the Oath Keepers trial officially rested their case after 19 days of presenting evidence against five members of the militia group charged with seditious conspiracy and a range of other felonies tied to the January 6th assault on the Capitol. ABC's Ike Ejachi has been following the trial and it seems like they've covered all their bases and then some with the more than two dozen witnesses they put on the stand. That's right. They really did. And this is one of the largest cases the federal government has brought to court. Now, that main charge that Stuart Rose, the leader of the Oath Keepers, and the four other members of that militia group, the main charge they're charged with is seditious conspiracy. That's a rare Civil War error charge that actually calls for up to 20 years behind bars. Now, as you said before, the jury has heard nearly five weeks of testimony, videos, and text messages, they say, proves the defendants were behind the violent plot that overturned the 2020 election. Right now, the case turns over to the defense, which they're preparing to actually put Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the field keepers, on the witness stand. And the defense says that they're going to take this unusual defense strategy with former President Trump at the center. Now, Rhodes' attorneys have said that his defense will focus on Rhodes' belief that Trump was eventually going to invoke the Insurrection Act to call up a militia and put down what he says, what the extremist group leader says, a coup that was going on by the Democrats. This is what the defense for Stuart Rhodes and the rest of the militia members will say. Whether or not that will win the jury over is another question down the road right now. Right. And and to that point, we heard from Jason Alpers, a military veteran who said the conspiracy actually continued after January 6th and continued to include President Trump. Exactly. And that's shown by all of the evidence that was put forward. Look, you saw a surveillance video showing Stuart Rhodes working in concert with other military members. We also saw text messages between Stuart Rhodes and some of Trump's closest allies and supporters. This shows that there could have been some kind of coordination, not only between these militia groups, but some of those closest to the Trump administration. And that's something that Stuart Rhodes will have to answer to by prosecutors once he's cross-examined on the stand. Again, a stance that is highly unusual in a case like this, and a move that can open up Rhodes for more legal jeopardy. ABC's Ike Ejachi on the Northwest Newsline as the Oath Keepers trial goes from the prosecution to the defense. And that's Kim Shepard. Happening here and across the country, a series of political mailers and radio ads are stirring accusations of racism. Now, the materials come from the America First Legal Foundation, a group founded by former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. Miller was the chief architect of the family separation policy at the southern border and has promoted white supremacist ideals in the past. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center lists him as an anti-immigrant extremist. Now, the mailers from his group include language like, quote, left-wing officials are engaged in widespread racial discrimination against white and Asian Americans, end quote. That's language very similar to radio ads the group is running in other markets. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Audio obtained by Politico. Now, State Representative Mai Lin Tai, a Democrat from Bellevue, received one of the mailers, and she tells the Seattle Times it made her angry, 
and that the ads are intended to divide the Asian and minority communities. The ads coincide with the midterm elections and two Supreme Court cases that we previously talked about, which could end affirmative action in college admissions. Finally this week, it's father versus son in a campaign for state legislature in a race that's splitting a family apart. Democrat Clyde Shavers is running for Washington State Representative in the 10th Legislative District, which includes Whidbey Island. But his biggest challenge isn't coming from the Republican incumbent, but rather his own father. Brett Shavers accuses his son of lying to voters about his military service, work history, and even residency. Among them, candidate Shavers claimed on his website that he served as a nuclear submarine officer for eight years, but his father says he never served on a sub, and that statement has since been removed from the campaign website. Shavers also claims to be a practicing attorney, but the Washington State Bar Association has no one listed under his name. However, Shavers' father also has something of a checkered past, admitting to the Everett Herald that he marched on the Capitol on January 6th, but he denies taking part in the insurrection. When reached for comments, Father Brett Shavers referred us to his attorney, who provided evidence to back up the father's claims. Clyde Shavers' campaign manager responded to us with a statement saying the claims of the father are false, And this is the kind of politics that tears families apart. Now, it's unclear how this October or now November surprise will affect the race this late in the election calendar. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.